Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, this is Emma, production and experience director at the Webby Awards. You might remember me from the old ads, but I'm back. Are you as impressed by the work of the Webby winners as we are? The work honored at the Webby Awards is changing the future of the internet, and you can have access to all the deets behind it. Sign up to the Webby Gallery and Index to uncover insights, inspiration, and trends for your work or just for fun. You'll get the ability to discover innovative projects from around the world that are awesome online, a database of credits to check out who made all that groundbreaking digital work, Trends and insights not available outside of our database, including major categories like fashion, sports, and social, and the advanced power of search. So if you're ahead of us and want to find something we didn't mention, you can do that too. Make sure you're in the know and sign up for free at the top of our page at webbyawards.com. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast viral in a good way make cool stuff that's it defend the nea the neh the cpb here's where the fun begins hey there and welcome back to the webby podcast today i'm playing two conversations from our last override event how we stay healthy Webby Executive Director Claire Graves talked to Naj Austin, the founder and CEO of Somewhere Good and Ethel's Club. While Ethel's Club started as an in-person social club, both platforms have become safe virtual spaces for people of color to gather, connect, and heal from the daily stressors of life. Afterward, I had a brief but fruitful conversation with Andy Slavitt, the former administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Obama. He's also the host of In the Bubble, a new podcast he started in the wake of COVID-19. Stick around for both for great takeaways on how the pandemic has impacted our individual and collective health and what we can do about that. Welcome, my name's Claire Graves. I'm the Executive Director of the Webby Awards and I'm coming to you from our New York office. I just wanted to first say welcome. We're so excited to have you join us today uh, and we're really excited to get going with our overriding health. This year marks the 25th annual Webby Awards, a huge year for us and our team, and we're planning a celebration in a year of uncertainty around the world. But this year also is marked by rapid change in so many different areas and industries, as people turn to technology and digital solutions to help them respond to this crisis. At the Webby Awards, we're really excited and fascinated by the way the world adapts and changes with the use of technology. So we've spent the last few months researching, documenting and studying the impact of the, of the pandemic on society and the internet. And with our partners at Slack, YouGov and WP Engine, we've created a series called Overwrite Tomorrow, which focuses on how the global pandemic created an indispensable internet and ignited the urgency to build a better future. As part of the program, we conducted a survey with YouGov 
of 3,000 consumers from all over the United States. And I wanted to share a couple of those uh, survey results with you, some of the results that really stood out to us. When asked specifically about health, 16% of our respondents said that they have used online med med medical doctors, doctor's visits for the very first time after March this year. And nearly 10% started using a mental health or meditation app for the first time after March as well. 56% of our respondents agree that they've noticed flaws in society they wouldn't have noticed without daily life so drastically changing. And only 16% of our respondents wants the world to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. We think that people are ready to look after themselves in, more, in a more conscious way and people are ready to build a better future. To that end, today we are thrilled to discuss the impact of the pandemic on our individual and collective health, mental health and well-being. And we're talking to two incredible leaders in this space. I'm going to kick off first talking with the CEO uh, and founder of Somewhere Good and Ethel's Club, Naj Austin. Then I'm gonna kick it over to our CEO, David Michelle Davies, who is going to interview former administrator of CMS under President Barack Obama and host of In The Bubble, Andy Slavitt. But right now, I'm so excited to kick off by introducing Naj Austin. Naj is an entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of Somewhere Good and Ethel's Club, a social and wellness platform centering people of color through community arts and culture. She has spent the last five years in real estate, hospitality, tech and hospitality tech industry, building digital and physical products aimed at making the world a more inclusive and equitable space. She was recently named one of Inc's 100 female founders transforming America and a HuffPost culture shifter of 2020 and Time Out's New, Time Out New York's 2020 list of women making New York City better. Naj, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. I'm really excited to be here today. Oh, we are we are huge. The, the team at the Webby Awards, huge founders, huge fans of everything that you do. Um, and so we're so excited to talk to you and learn from you today. Of course, this is like my favorite thing to talk about. I am, uh, I wouldn't use the word obsessed, but I think a lot about community, mental health, wellness, um, and radical practices to make it more accessible uh, for people. Well, we thought maybe we would just start at the start and ask you to tell us a little bit about Ethel's Club and Somewhere Good and what, you're started, what you've started this year. Sure. Um, so I started Ethel's Club in January of 2018. Ethel's Club is a social and wellness club designed to center and celebrate people of color. Uh, we originally opened a physical clubhouse in Brooklyn, New York, and obviously due to COVID shut down four months in uh, and very quickly pivoted towards a digital model because what we felt uh, in, the, in the height of the pandemic was that people needed more access to mental health practitioners, uh, to wellness practitioners, and we wanted to provide that space for them. So we launched a digital clubhouse in March I think it was March 13th to be exact. And from then on, we've just grown to this global community of over 1,000 people uh, around the world who kind of come to us to center their day, to discover new rituals and practices they can bring into their day, um, to feel more inspired, to feel more grounded, to feel happier. Um, 
And, and the biggest thing I think is to be connected with other people. Um, the, the idea of trying to find really thoughtful, intentional community when we can only do it on our screens um, is a really difficult thing to, to try to do. And so with Ethel's Club uh, membership, you can connect with other people who share the same interests that you do. Um, we recently launched Somewhere Good about five weeks ago, which is a social platform that connects people of color to all of the things that they love. What we found with Apple's Club is that when you give marginalized communities a sense of belonging in a really specific way, and we did that with Holistic Wellness, they want that feeling represented throughout the rest of their life. And we are a small and mighty team, but we can't do it all. And so by creating a social platform, we're able to kind of lower the barrier to, to entry and, and have a space where people can find one another, find resources and really share um, across all aspects of their life. Ethel's Club has become a really important social club and co-working space for um, BIPOC. What inspired you to, what, where did the idea come from? What inspired you to create this, uh, this space specifically for this community? I think the biggest thing is that I was missing it for my own life. Um, I was looking for a space to kind of connect with people in a really sort of low stakes way. I was trying to navigate the mental health world, which always felt a little bit inaccessible. It always felt a little confusing. Um, I wasn't sure what I was looking for. And so I have these two big needs in my own life and, and couldn't figure out a way to solve them in a way that felt exciting and or like I was on the right path. And so I had this idea that if you could create a space um, and this at first version, uh, vision was physical, you could create a space that made people feel unburdened and safe and, and connected from the minute they walk in the door, they're more willing to try things that maybe they would not have done otherwise. And so the physical Clubhouse's main goal was to help our members um, kind of find like low lift wellness. And, and what I mean by that is sort of, you know, having entry events to breath work or journaling or meditation or things that you've heard about that you've never tried, uh, but, but trying it and exploring it in a way that feels uh, much, again, much more accessible and, and alongside other people who are doing it for the first time as well. And so the, the original vision for Ethel's Club was to be a place that connected people to a lot of things. Um, and we were trying a lot of those things out right around the time that COVID happened and we sort of had to shift gears. So can you tell us about some of those things and then what, what's the benefit of uh, practicing those things? Sure, so the biggest one is that we connect our members to other practitioners of color. Um, so when you talk to marginalized communities, a huge part of the barrier to entry when it comes to sort of wellness as a general sort of space um, is that the people who are giving the classes, sessions, and our workshops tend to be white, um, which adds another layer to the user not wanting to explore uh, what, what they're offering. And we wanted to shed a, a spotlight on the different uh, creators, practitioners, healers of color who are already out here doing amazing work, but again, it's really difficult to find them. Um, so we have classes that really span everything. Um, we have a writer's therapy group that meets once a week. Um, we had sort of like an art journaling session where we had a practitioner come on and she had a, a set list and people kind of created uh, art to, to her music. Um, we also have more traditional things like yoga, breath work, meditation, journaling, um, tarot guidance, workshops on sort of deep sticky topics. Um, anything that re requires um, the user to kind of dig deep and, and sort of heal, um, we love doing. 
And so what are what are the what are the benefits of experiencing or or practicing those things? Yeah, so I think the biggest benefit is that in this t- time particularly, um, there's a lot of chaos <laughs> happening outside of our screens and potentially on our screens. Um, I think people want to go to a place that tends to be quieter, that tends to feel more less high stakes. And we offer that through these classes, through these guided sessions, and through the sense of community where we very much um, kind of remove ourselves from the traditional news cycles. Um, we share things that are meant to inspire and empower the user. So we, we kind of see ourselves as like an alternative uh, space online where obviously we all want to be informed. And so we're definitely on Twitter and we're definitely on Instagram. But if you want to kind of escape that and go to an oasis that tends to be a little bit kinder, more thoughtful, again, more positive leaning, you would want to come to Ethel's Club. Sounds like a beautiful place. (laughs) Ethel's Club, as you said, opened as a physical space in Brooklyn in November last year and was really kicking off. I know a lot of the people on our team were excited to actually come and see the space and participate events, but they didn't actually make it because it was closed down. In March. Um, can you talk a little bit about how your team navigated through through the quick pivot to digital, how you did it and yeah. how you came up with the programming? Yeah, I think the, 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 the biggest thing for us was that our vision for what Ethel's Club does was that we empower people of color to feel inspired and grounded through holistic wellness events. And so technically, that could be anywhere. I think our first, again, our first vision was that it'd be physical, but we learned very quickly when we moved online was that people, as far as the Netherlands, London, Paris, where we have members, were also looking for the same thing. And so it was not necessarily a hard decision in terms of shutting down the clubhouse. Our priority has always been our community safety and ensuring that they are protected. Um, so we, that was the easiest decision of all. Um, then it became the sort of technical aspect of how do we spin up this digital clubhouse. We have a really amazing programming team that was doing all of our IRL events and we sort of sat in the conference room that day and said, okay, we have to put it all online. They were like, okay, we'll put it all online. And so it was, it was very much like there wasn't an alternative. And so we just sort of did it. I mean, it was a very late night. We were here probably until about 2 a.m. But we managed to get all of the events that week. And I think the following week online, we managed to build out um, a digital clubhouse effectively where members could kind of join and, and kind of interact with one another. Um, so the decision was easy. The, the bringing it to life was a touch hard and our programming team had already been sort of stacked with so many events. And again, once we went global, we had this moment where we were like, wait, we could have anyone anywhere do an event, you know, that hadn't crossed our mind. We were so focused on New York City and Brooklyn beforehand. And so really things got a little bit easier for us, um, which was exciting. So how did the community respond? Is there certain events that they like to attend more? Did they rush to certain things? So I think in the beginning, I mean, from the beginning, the community was so excited, you know, they, and we had a lot of people who said, this is awesome because I live in, you know, LA and I've wanted to join Athens Club and now I can. So that was really exciting to see. Um, It sort of went through waves in terms of what people responded to. I think in the very beginning of coronavirus, people were seeking joy. So they wanted to attend events that were like DJ sets or sort of happy hour gatherings, that kind of thing. 
And then about three months in, I think there was a pretty big, big shift towards uh, mental health and wellness. And this sort of lined up with the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so you had people who were, who've been in their homes for three months. Um, they're in desperate need of community, but they're also struggling through, you know, potential mental health uh, issues and feelings that they've never had before. And so where do I go to maybe just talk about it, maybe meet a practitioner? I don't know what the next steps are. And so we were... Um, sort of uniquely aligned at that moment where we had already been providing these services so that people sort of that kind of skyrocketed and we started to offer free healing sessions to the community at large so you don't have to be there once a month um, we bring in different folks again from you know afrofuturistic journaling towards breathwork healing towards meditation etc um, as a resource for people during that time. And that's been our, our sort of mainstay for the last couple of months. We were just rated by New York Magazine as one of the best mental health resources for people of color, which was exciting. Wow, congratulations, that's huge. That's awesome. Um, many parts of the internet are dangerous and violent against BIPOC and LGBTQ people. How do you keep Eccles Club a safe digital space for members? So the biggest way that we do this, I think, is that we have a really clear code of conduct and we're really unapologetic about who we are and who we are not for. Um, so yes, we are for people of color, but we're for people of color who are looking to create kind, intentional, thoughtful connections with one another. If you're a person of color who does not want to do that, then Ethel's Club is definitely not the best space for you. Um, so, so really strict code of conduct. And again, when you're talking about marginalized communities that are offered so few spaces, when they find a space that treats them with respect, where they go and they feel joy, they protect it just as much as we do. Um, so so they're, they're, they're big proponents in terms of why this space has continued to offer so safely um, and continue to grow is because our members make sure that the people who were there um, and who they're inviting in are kind of the right people to build alongside us, if that makes any sense. But outside of that, we have, again, a really strict code of conduct. We have zero tolerance policies. If things, um, if, a, if a member is, is made to feel uncomfortable, we immediately remedy the situation. Um, we're incredibly hands-on right now uh, to make sure that everyone is having that kind of joyous empowering experience that we have built for them. Yeah, that sounds it sounds really good to be to be fast about those things. Um, one of the things that I have been thinking about recently and I think is so perfect about Ethel's Club is the idea that when things uh, stop being quite so crazy and people can start spending time together and spending time inside together uh, in spaces like Ethel's Club, there will be a huge desire for people to want to spend more time with community, uh, particularly in their local communities, because people may not necessarily go back to working the same way that they were working. If you think about New York City, people might necessarily not be coming into New York City. So the club's in Bushwick and I'm sure more, more people will be wanting to spend time in their neighbourhoods. What is the plan for Ethel's Club when things sort of do go back to a little bit more the way that they were before in terms of spending time together? Are you planning on ex expanding across the United States or across, across the world? What's the plan? I think the one thing that uh, COVID has taught me is to not plan too, too much. <laughs> in the future. Um, so we definitely 
want to facilitate gathering in physical spaces. We obviously have a physical space, it's all done. Um, but we're also hyper aware of the kinds of gathering that we built the space for, which was for really intimate, close connection. Um, and that's sort of the one thing you're, you're not supposed to do. Um, so I guess our, our take on it is like, we want to open, no one wants to open more than we do just in terms of seeing the community together again. Um, but we want to approach it from a perspective of making sure that everyone is safe. So that may be kind of re-going through the, the clubhouse and changing the way that it's laid out so that it is safer for people to gather, not so close, um, but still sort of be in the same proximity with one another. Um, but but I, I think it's going to be incredibly important. We've already had a lot of people reach out and sort of ask when we're opening again. And I'm like, well, we're taking it day by day, you know, checking the news. Um, because again, our, our, our ultimate um, duty is to make sure that people come here and that they are safe um, and that they won't get ill or in or sick. Um, so that's sort of where my head's at, but I do, you know, in the future, definitely see Ethel's Club spaces around the world. That's exciting. Can, are you doing, are you getting together, getting the community together outside or that still feels like it's a little bit um, too far away? We actually did that over the summer. We had um, two outdoor markets. So here in the clubhouse, we have a tiny area in the front that has a boutique where we sell items created by people of color. So during the summer, we have some outdoor space. We wanted to, again, provide just a space for the community to gather. So we had an outdoor market um, both in July and August where, you know, about 20 vendors came and then sort of were able to raise some funds for mutual aid funds that we support um, and, and just again share in sort of time and space with one another which is something that's been hard to do the last couple of um, months but obviously it's getting a little bit colder here in New York so also being cognizant of that as well. Less cold than we would have thought it would be this week has been kind of beautiful hasn't it? <laughs> um, let's talk about some way good. You describe Somewhere Good as a social media playground for BIPOC to connect over things they like. What holes or gaps were you seeing from other social me media platforms that inspired this? So I think the biggest thing was, uh, there are two, two aspects. Um, one was the, idea, the, the point of safety. Um, I think as a marginalized person navigating the internet, you're often met with situations that feel unsafe, uh, that feel discriminatory, that don't spark joy. Um, we saw a huge opportunity in the fact that what about if we created an alternative that actually made people feel good? Uh, was it still a place where you could share information and connect with other people, which is what social media is, but it was not sort of in the same, built from the same foundation where when you talk about platforms like Twitter, people often say, you know, use words like doom scrolling. Um, that's something that we're trying to actively work against. Um, the, the next biggest thing is that as a person of color um, and someone coming from marginalized communities, my identity is incredibly important to me. It influences almost every decision that I make. Um, it is a huge you know, value of mine that I support with my dollars, time, and energy. And right now, there is not one cohesive place to, to find these many things, whether it's a black-owned coffee shop 
or um, a community centered around other uh, entrepreneur, Black entrepreneurs in Brooklyn. Um, not easy to find, right? It's all fragmented all around the internet. You kind of have to go to Reddit, then maybe Google, and maybe Twitter, and then maybe you can find a WhatsApp group, um, maybe. And so we wanted to make that really easy for people. Um, the way that Summer Good works is that the user onboards themselves, they self-select their identity and interests, and we connect them to communities that are a good fit for them. So again, the idea is to foster really intentional connection that centers identity, that centers interests, um, and is in a safe place. This is something when I've been doing my research on you and, um, and following you, this is something that has blown me away. You um, are a Black woman and have two startups. <laughs> <laughs> which I imagine would be very challenging. So I was hoping that you could tell us about some of those challenges. Yeah, so they're, they're actually pretty intertwined because we're basically building, you know, Somewhere Good is just a tech platform and a lot of amazing communities and people will sort of live on top of it. And so Ethel's Club will be one of those communities. So for me, it's, they're, they're sort of one and the same. Um, I think the bit, the hardest thing is that there's just more to do, but I think that just sort of growth with any startup. Um, so we really see both of them as brands that we're working on and very much like agency style. Some people on the team work across both brands some people only work on one brand. Um, obviously as the founder and CEO, I work across both, um, but, but they influence our decisions, right? How our members act and what they're looking for with an Apples Club influences what we're building into somewhere good um, and, and vice versa because they need to kind of meet in the middle and be supportive to one another. Um, so, so it's simple in that it's simpler in that regard, but I think, yes, it's it's definitely harder. Um, it's hard to just run a company at all. <laughs> you know? Even pandemic. <laughs> um, the hardest part for me actually has been being remote. I think building something from the ground up remote um, is just not the same as before. You know, you were able to kind of spend nine hours in a coffee shop or, or have a whiteboarding session that went into the wee hours of the night. And now we're just not allowed that. So it requires a lot more upfront planning to make time for planning, um, which is new to me. But, um, you know, we all are so excited about bringing uh, some more good to life over the next couple of months that we're willing to kind of make those kinds of concessions. I mean, if you're facing all of those challenges now and building a company and pushing it forward, then to me, it seems as though the, the success will be far greater once everything comes back to normal a little bit more. Totally agree. Um, okay, we're gonna go and see if there's any questions from the audience. Oh, there's a ton. Um, okay, Dr. Amina Sharma is asking, staying healthy is very crucial, especially during the pandemic, when much is at stake. It is not only physical health, but mental health too. How do you, how do you keep balance? I just have a bad answer to this. Um, I am a work in progress. <laughs> and I think the biggest thing that I've allowed myself to feel is, is some, some grace that I am alongside the rest of you, navigating a global pandemic. We just finished an election. I mean, there's a lot of things happening. Um, and so I've allowed myself 
to feel okay that maybe I didn't journal for the 15th day in a row and maybe I'm not eating the healthiest meal and maybe I didn't go on that walk I definitely said I was going to go on, um, which I think pre-coronavirus, uh, I was incredibly hard on myself, super type A, very much, you know, I have to do all of the right things. And I think what the last eight months has taught me is that I'm fine, it's fine, and I can do it tomorrow. And by allowing myself that freedom to to kind of learn really what my needs are, right? Like, do I need to go on a walk every day or do I just need a screen break every four hours? You know, what, what do I actually need? And then kind of building rituals and practices around that. And so be easy on yourself is the biggest thing I tell everyone is that we're all navigating this for the first time. It's definitely not easy. It's definitely not fun. Um, so, so, so have some grace for yourself and for others. That is excellent advice. I keep, I also find it hard to give myself a break when I'm not doing those things, but I've been trying to give myself a break. It helps if you put something in your calendar. I started that on Monday, so I can't really <laughs> it's working, but um, it's what, day two, three? Third day. Have you given yourself a break today? Yeah, I went on a walk earlier. Oh, well, there you go. That's good. It also helps to have a dog because the dog has to get you outside to have a break. Everyone should get a dog. I also like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Nix from New York is asking, Naj is a self, as a self-described introvert, how have you navigated this during quarantine and how do you find community online? So I think about this a lot because I think that our product inherently speaks to people who are looking for community um, from the beginning, right? We almost have two user journeys. One is someone who's looking for wellness classes, sessions, workshops, and the other person just wants to be around other people. Um, and, and the beauty of what we've done with Apples Club is that we kind of combine the two so that it's, again, really, really low stakes, right? It's not a networking event where you're now forced to talk with people that you're maybe not super jazzed about, but you're already doing it to who you are. Whereas instead you are sharing in these really unique experiences with other people who are, you know, having the same ideally um, positive experiences as you were having. Um, and one of the things we do with Apple's Club is that we connect users. So we may say, um, you know, Bob and Jane, you both attend our yoga class in the mornings, you know, you two should chat. Um, so, so trying to formulate a, a much deeper connection by the things that you're actually doing in your life versus um, sort of more empty things I'd say. Um, but in terms of finding community as an introvert, I would try to um, start online, right? It's almost easier that way. You can do a couple of classes and or workshops where your camera's off, or maybe you're meeting people in the chat. Um, you can then maybe turn your camera on. It helps when you have the same consistent community. Again, a value out of Apple's Club is that you're seeing the same people all of the time. And so they may already feel like they know you, where it's, you know, hey, how are you versus, oh, hi, let me introduce myself, um, which is something we've seen in real time. Um, we've had members connect by going to the same kinds of workshops. And then I see them like talking to each other on Twitter and I'm like, oh my gosh, hi. Um, so, so I think, you know, trying to find a, a deep community, um, one that really believes in fostering connections with their members is, is important. Um, and I think from there, um, just trying to be as present as possible in those events that you you go to. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the things that we have been discussing at the Webby Awards is the idea that the the learnings that we're ha- the learnings that we're making now will hopefully continue through, and that's part of what we've been saying about building a better future. And one of the really great things about everything going digital or everything going virtual is that, as you've been saying, it's enabled us to. Um, create events that are accessible and inclusive and hopefully equitable as well. Do you, are you thinking about continuing the virtual aspect of Ethel's Club as things go back to the way they were or will you focus more on the actual uh, community space? We're, we're definitely going to keep the digital space. Um, I think it's provided us with a global community now. Um, you can be at one of our yoga sessions and connect with someone who, again, lives in the Netherlands. Um, I think that that is a really sort of priceless feeling in terms of folks who are looking for community. So the digital community is not going anywhere. Um, I think if you had asked me in the early parts of the pandemic, it definitely felt like, oh, this is sort of an interim solution. Um, but I think now we've all realized that um, this will be more of our way of life Um, than I think we thought. And so our goal is to make these experiences better, stronger, more compelling uh, for the user. And great for introverts as well, who don't necessarily have the energy to get out of the house every week. Exactly. One more question from Justin. He says, do you think people are interested in engaging in self-care practices when they are being presented by their employers? This is a good one because it's something that we've been thinking about a lot at the Webby Awards. Or should it remain a personal endeavour? I think that if more employers made space for... I think if more employers normalised how necessary self-care wellness practices are, that would be a good thing for everyone. Um, I've talked to a lot of people where they feel like they can't you know, during their workday, like, you know, they can't do yoga because they're working, um, which, you know, I think is strange <laughs> because, you know, I think we're all, we're all working nonstop now. The, the fact that someone's doing a yoga class at three o'clock, I mean, unless it's getting in the middle of a deadline, it's totally fine. Um, so, so I think that employers, again, talking about it is a step in the right direction. I think their level of involvement is a different um, perspective. We have some corporations that have per- just, you know, uh, bulk memberships for their employees to, to, to Ethel's Club. And they've kind of reported back that, you know, our, our employees have been so happy and they actually wanted to bring in some of the practitioners into our thing. And so I think the more that we talk about um, mental health and wellness, 
just as a thing that exists in the world is better in terms of making it more accessible, in terms of making it more inexpensive, in terms of making it people feel okay that they can talk about it. And that's a huge part of the stigma when you talk about um, these kinds of things. And that's something we're actively working against. One of the things we did here at the clubhouse is that when you walk in, you see, you know, the chic lounge area and the tables and, you know, kind of co-working stuff. But then we also have a wellness room that's in the middle of the clubhouse. We didn't want to tuck it away. We didn't want to put it in the back because for us, your wellness is as important as, you know, are you eating healthy? And, you know, did you go on your walk this week? Um, so we want it to be sort of loud and unapologetic that it's incredibly important and should be talked about all the time. And so I see, again, employers, uh, by supporting this, of saying, it's okay, check in on your wellness. You know, I want you to feel good and better. And if that's yoga, journaling, meditation, I think that is good. Uh, but I do think there's a fine line where maybe they want to be too involved. Would be interesting to see the results of employers that do encourage checking in on your wellness, uh, checking in on your mental health and well-being, and um, whose employees practice that. And the results that come from from employees that are practicing and the, the focus for work as well alongside just being happier. Totally. And, and I think the two are, you know, at minimum, you've made your employees feel a little bit of joy, right? Or maybe they learn something. And, and that's always a positive for the employer. We've had about four companies after purchasing the first round of memberships come back and want to purchase more because their employees got something out of it, um, something valid enough where the employers wanted to purchase another round of membership. So, you know, I think it's, it's a slow process, um, but I think we're on the right track now. Well, I am so excited to see where it goes. Me too. <laughs> There's lots more questions, but unfortunately, well, I think we have to hand it over to David Michelle. Thank you so much, Naj. It's been great to chat. Thank you for having me. This is great. Take care. Thank you. Bye, everyone. So in a moment, I'm going to hand over to David Michelle, who is going to interview Andy Slavitt about how the pandemic is affecting the health system and people. Uh, before I do pass the mic, though, I would be it would be remiss of me if I didn't remind everybody that uh, entries are open. The final entry deadline is coming up on Friday, December 18th. This year, we have introduced a whole suite of new categories to honour the new work that is being created for the internet this year. Uh, some of those categories include software, podcasts, and virtual and remote. Uh, I like to remind people that entering the Webby Awards is a great way to reward and honour your team for their hard work. So we encourage you to enter this year particularly. Um, and the submission site is open at webbyawards.com. So on that note, thank you. And over to you, David, Michelle. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Anaj Austin. That was a wonderful interview. I really loved having both of you. That was great. Uh, we are super fortunate here, I'm getting myself settled, uh, to have uh, what I would say what is a was and is a very bright light uh, during what has been, not all the time, but at times, uh, some dark times out there in the world and specifically some dark times in the internet. And uh, our guest Andy Slavitt though has been, has been I think somebody that many of us have looked to and appreciated and really sort of like uh, made, made our days brighter and more optimistic and, and just generally been a really great source of information. So uh, I'm gonna tell you a bit about Andy here. 
Um, Andy has led some of the largest uh, decades of private and public health sector initiatives in healthcare. Uh, many of you who know him know that from 2015 to 17, he was appointed by President Obama to serve as the acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, today, Andy is dedicated to building a sustainable, high-quality healthcare system that is available to all Americans. He is the founder and board chair of nonprofit United States of Care, and is also a general partner at Town Hall Ventures, which sparks innovation in vulnerable communities. Uh, he also has a podcast, which launched earlier this year, sort of uh, took, took the world by storm, I would say, in the, in the podcast world. Uh, it's called In the Bubble. Uh, Andy Slava, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Hey, Dave Michelle, glad to be here. My pleasure. So um, I got a lot of stuff I want to ask you about. I want to start off with the podcast, uh, just because specifically, uh, I, it's, you're, you had a recent episode which sort of touched on, I think, something I kind of want to talk a bit more about. Um, the most recent episode was really about like, I would say surviving COVID this winter is maybe the, and like the tools that people can use. And what I loved about it is it was sort of the ultimate expression of actually all this information that the internet does bring us and your ability to curate it and summarize it. And it makes really empowering um, as opposed to some of the other ways the internet has impacted COVID, which we'll talk to you about in a little second. But tell me a bit about um, what you learned um, during doing the episode, producing the episode, what tips and stuff can you share with people around how they should be thinking about coronavirus here in the next few months? Yeah, right, it's like who knew that like air filtration could be a cool topic, right? It's like everything has its day and uh, apparently this is the day for understanding indoor air quality. So um, that's what you gotta hear, that's what you gotta hear. I mean, look, the, the thing about setting up in the bubble was like asking ourselves like what what are people missing? Like, what do they need to hear? I mean, there's no shortage of cable chirons telling you, um, you know, that there's a breaking alert and there's no shortage of big red maps scaring people. So that wasn't, that wasn't it. Um, felt to me, and we kind of describe it as 50% uh, Winston Churchill, 50% Fred Rogers. So um, just kind of calm, reliable, factual information people want. People are calmer when they feel like they're getting the straight story um, and they don't feel like they're getting the straight story from a lot of places. Um, they, they need to understand that things evolve and where things learn, uh, we can learn from. Fred Rogers in the sense that this is, there's no better time to help people than during the pandemic. We'll never get a greater chance to help our friends, neighbors, colleagues, just check in on people, see how they're doing um, and, and sort of remind people that you don't have to put your lives on hold it's a pandemic. So there's this whole like until the pandemic's over thing. Um, you know, during during the Great Depression, you know, my grandmother went without coffee for two years. Um, I, but you know, the, in sacrifice, there's ways to find meaning. Um, in helping people, there's ways to find meaning. So, you know, my 18-year-old son asked, asked me, say, Dad, let's let's do a podcast together. Let's just get all the people you talk to every day anyway and bring them directly to people so they could hear. And this latest episode, I think was like, look, winter, winter's coming, right? And you've got all kinds of things, but whether they're mental health issues, but just being indoors is, is dangerous right now. We got a big ramp up in cases. So we brought like the two world experts in the topic. And it was crazy because, you know, I get more people listening to that, right? Than we'll listen to Tina Fey or Chuck Schumer or, right? It's just like, for some reason, 
like people have a hunger for that kind of stuff right now. I mean, there's, there is a lot of misinformation out there. It might be part of it. What are the, what are some of the, just to entice people to go listen to it who haven't already, what are some of the lessons you learned and tips you learned for the, for the winter? Well, so there's like, there's, first of all, I mean, the thing that you learn is that like when we talk, yell, scream, laugh, whatever, like these little particles stay in the room for a long time, like much longer than we thought. And if the room's not getting ventilated, um, you know, you've got to use a combination of things. It can be dangerous. Um, and there's just, there's no way to imagine a Thanksgiving where people aren't talking with their masks off and indoors where it's not kind of a bad situation. And most of the spread happening these days is what they call family spread inside of households. So it is a, it is a, but when you understand the science and understand like, how do you get at least a little bit of air moving in the room, but the combination of getting a little air moving in the room, some type of filter, um, a mask, distancing, uh, like all of those things layered in and oh, and then time, right? So if you're in for 15 minutes, your exposure is lower than it's in for a long time. And so this, this guy basically outlined all of these things pretty scientifically in, in a way that essentially allows you to under, understand, people get the, some of the basics, like yeah, wear a mask indoors, but like most of us wanna know why. Right. And, you know, he basically, you know, said, you know, this is the particles gonna stay in the air for this long, put an infiltration up a window, it's gonna be this long and so on and so forth. So um, it was really great public health advice. And I think people who listen to it feel a lot more comfortable um, going into the winter, it'll be challenging. I encourage, I definitely encourage people to listen to it. Um, the why is sort of the difference between whether people do it or not, right? It's like, you can tell people to brush their teeth. It's not that much fun to brush your teeth, but once you understand why you need to brush your teeth, there's a lot more motivation. Is that sort of, you think, what's, what's been lacking in having a, a stronger culture around the basic tenets of social distancing and mask wearing and some of those things that we hear public health people talking about a lot? but we don't necessarily see the type of buy-in that we might see in other, other types of activity. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, our, our reaction to this pandemic like reflects a lot of our societal views, right? And so, and so people want to be validated, right? So if you tell people who aren't wearing a mask, you know, I'm going to glare at you and, um, and, 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 and make it unreasonable for you to do things that a year ago were quite reasonable, you know, it's, it sort of pulls us apart. So we, we, did a, we did an episode on how do you talk to people in your, your family or friend group who disagree with you about masks and social distancing or in your, in your workplace. And, you know, I mean, we had, we got, I just, just, just leave a voicemail if you wanna, if you have a question. We got two calls per minute the entire night. Uh, I have governors of both parties call and, and ask literally the same questions. How do you talk to people about this stuff? And it's interesting because there, there's a set of people who understand that, you know, we do a small sacrifice for yourself. It's good for society. There's some people who feel like, you know what, my individual liberty is my individual liberty. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And so um, the more people um, push on that, the worse, the more people respond negatively. Mm. But some of the trick is, is you're saying is give people a little bit of agency. I, oddly enough, ironically enough, letting people know that, hey, of course, this is your decision. Help us understand what, why is it that you don't want to wear a mask. Engage people. And I encourage people, like, don't break lifelong relationships over this stuff. You, you will look back and say, 
you know, while I, I didn't talk to, I, there's people like, I don't talk to my mother anymore. I don't talk to my kids anymore because they, you know, they're, they're, they have such strong feelings. And so it's very hard, um, but you got to try to be understanding and explain to people, look, here's why I'm wearing a mask. You know, I have a daughter who has this Im Im immune problem and I would, it would be wonderful if you knew that. I just wanted you to know that because there's people who are telling me they're going to work every day and literally their boss is not behaving safely around them and they want to know what to do. So these yeah. are real challenges. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating from a, just like an information study perspective. I mean, it, you think about the internet and it's, it's like eliminated so many like information bubbles, right? So it's like pretty easy to figure out what restaurants to go to if you don't want to have a bad meal. And like, if you want to go see a bad movie or back in the, before when we were going to movies, I mean, if you went to a bad movie, that's basically because you either wanted to or you just didn't bother to look up to see if it was good or bad. Like it's, it's we essentially know whether a movie's good or not. People can make decisions about that. Most people choose not to go see bad movies for the most part. But for some reason around this topic, it's like, is the, does the internet actually make it worse? Like well, do you think that, you know, if we went back to 1918, do you think that there's like better information around this stuff or worse than there was then? You know, I mean, so you take something that is, so the, the, like the mask, right? It became a symbol. Um, it wasn't just good public health decision versus bad public health decision. It became, what kind of American are you? you know, how macho are you? Like, you know, the, this challenge went out there. And then what the internet does, right, is it provides all the confirmation bias you need, right? Because whatever opinion you have, we'll find, we'll find support for it. Yeah. I'll find, we'll find a, um, a non- uh, peer-reviewed study which can support any idea you tell me the idea I'll find you your support that's so the internet is dangerous in the in in, in the sense that if, if it's completely uncurated right and you have no um and you start out with a point of view and look this is what the president did the president essentially found a scientific advisor who would agree with him as opposed to listening to what the scientific advisors who were qualified told him that's a little bit of a, of a micro, and I don't mean to make this a political conversation, but um, you know, when, when you're still learning about something, right? This is a novel virus. We don't have all the facts or things are coming in, facts change. Um, you have so much room to put your own views and values on what you choose to believe. Yeah, and I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it ladders into the, the, the glorious, you know, longer conversation around conspiracy theories and the way those are formed and all, and all that, which is, we, we won't go quite into there because that, that could take some time. But um, I mean, I initially had, uh, we initially, when I was looking at these questions and thinking about what I'm gonna ask you is sort of like, if you were in charge of a COVID approach and it seems sort of timely that, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you will eventually be in charge again, one never knows, but, uh, it does happen to coincide here with the fact that we are going to have a change in administrations. Um, if you were in charge or if you were advising the people who are in charge, what's the kind of big wholesale change you'd like to see in the way we approach the communication around the virus and how people can prevent it and also the nuts and bolts of how we treat it as a public health crisis? Yeah. I mean, look, the, here's the thing that's really interesting. The public health component about this is not all that complex. Um, to give you an example, continent of Africa has 1.3 billion people. They've had 35,000 total deaths. Um, it's not a particularly high-tech solution. Um, it's, it's about, uh, it's a low-tech solution. We don't need, we just can't breathe each other's air until we get this 
until science tells us otherwise, which will be sooner than we sooner than we thought. It'll be pretty soon. But so that that challenge, you know, get people to understand that um, requires consistency, requires leadership, requires adaptability, and so forth. There are many good public health people right now in the Trump administration, CDC, otherwise, that that know what to do. Um, they're just contradicted by their boss. So you know, they go out and say, wear a mask. You know, we should temporarily close bars, etc. And you've got the president who's just saying the opposite. Um, and then, and then it's a bit of an orchestra. And it's not a solo, right? Because we're going to say, okay, we, we need to temporarily close bars. What they did in Germany is they make a payment to all the bar owners while they're closed. And because no one wants to see their favorite bars closed, right? So let's say you don't do that. What happens? Then people say, well, this is a this is a choice between the bar I go to, guy who opened this thing up with his sweat equity 20 years ago, that family, or people who are getting sick who I don't really know, right? So you're putting people in this spot, whereas a, a, a comprehensive government approach um, addresses those issues. So you say, yeah, of course we don't want, you know, the bar owner to suffer. Um, we're going to take care of that. You need a president and an administration who can work with Congress and do that. And that's, that's um, it's being done in Germany, it's being done, and not, look, none of them get rid of the virus, but they all make it easier to live with them and, and make sure we have a lot fewer people getting it. And of course, a lot of people, people fewer die. I was, um, I was reading like an article uh, that was written prior to COVID and it was sort of around the the 100 year anniversary of the 1918 flu. Um, and it was really looking at like how there had become all this innovate out. There was all this innovation in public health that came out of the 1918 flu. Do you see innovation? Are we starting to see some innovation? Do you think we'll look back at 2020 and, and, and see the beginning of an innovation in public health and innovation in science due to what's happened here? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, first of all, I at, uh, at a few minutes, I've got to get on MSNBC for the court case, that the Supreme Court case. So I know you guys ran a little bit late, but I just wanted to make sure you, the, 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 my Skype will probably ring or something. Um, yeah, look, here's something interesting about science and innovation. We've done a remarkable job at the hard sciences and a terrible job at the soft sciences. So like, what do I mean by that? Like, you know, the work on vaccines has been nothing short of extraordinary. Um, so like the hard science, all the praise in the world, the soft sciences, like psychology, human behavior, sociology, empathy, um, you know, our values, like that's the stuff we haven't gotten right. That's the stuff that's tripped us up. I mean, you know, places like Taiwan and Hong Kong, they don't have any vaccine either. Only a hundred people have died in Hong Kong. Last time I checked, they're closer to Wuhan than we are and have a lot more travel there than we do. Um, but they, they have the habits, they have the experience, they know how to um, respond in, in situations like this. Um, and they don't have these sort of like abstract conversations about my liberty to not wear a mask, right? It's not, it's just not part of their value system. Here it is. Uh, if the government tells you to do something here, um, there's a lot of people who on principle just think that's bad. That's something uniquely American. So I don't think the places, I mean, I will be so proud of the innovation that's come out of here, um, but hang on one second. Process, 
and I've been through sorry, it's a, different transition processes. One from sorry, I'm going to have to get on my. Uh, to, All right, that's all great. Um, Andy Slavitt, thank you for joining us. We'll let so you hop. Uh, thank you guys. You good luck. All right, take care. Thank you so much. That was a great combo. Um, if you wish it would have lasted longer, like I do, I would encourage you to check out his podcast, which is awesome. It's called In the Bubble. Uh, he's had people like uh, Ambassador Susan Rice on, uh, Chuck Schumer, Governor Andy Bashir from Kentucky, um, lots of super smart scientists too. So I really encourage you to, to check that out. Uh, we're gonna wrap up. I wanna thank Andy Slavitt for being part of today's Overwrite. Uh, I also want to thank Nat, uh, Naj Austin and my colleague Claire Graves for their inter interview earlier on today. And of course, we want to say thank you to our sponsors, Slack and YouGov and WP Engine for their support of this program. We are going to take a short break with the Override event series after having just completed our third year. Uh, we'll take a break until the new year where we're going to be looking at overriding entertainment and community. Uh, if you missed any of our past episodes, you can catch up with those. We had Overwrite, How We Advocate with Rashad Robinson uh, from Color of Change and Shaniqua McClendon uh, from Crooked Media. And Overwrite, How We Learn with Wendy Cobb and David Roger, who is um, from Masterclass. And you can check out those at webbyawards.com slash webbytalks. So with that, uh, thank you all. I reiterate my colleague Claire Graves' uh, reminder to make sure you enter. Our deadline is coming up. And otherwise, uh, thank you to everyone who participated and to all of you out there. Stay safe and be well. Thank you so much to Naj and Andy for joining us for Overwrite. I hope you all enjoyed it, and we'll include links to learn more about Ethel's Club and In the Bubble in the show notes. Before I leave you, one request. If you enjoy our podcast, the wildly eclectic conversations we host about the internet and culture, we'd be so grateful if you'd leave us a review. If you are making great stuff on the internet, I hope you won't forget to enter. Our final deadline is coming up Friday, December 18th. For information on that and other information on the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com. That's W-E-B-B-Y awards.com. And on most social platforms at the Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Taylor Griffin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our editor is Terrence Brosnan. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is the back of the Bork we all hope to visit. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.